Hi, today we're looking at Daniel chapter 3 for our Connect Group lesson, and I'm going to walk you through some of the background information and historical context so that you can prepare for the group by reflecting on application. And again, the questions that you'll want to work through are, what does this reveal about the character of God? What does this tell me about people and the temptations they face? Uh, the sin that they commit, and how can I apply this to my life? How should my life change as a result of this scripture? Let's jump into chapter 3. Daniel does not make an appearance in, in this story, and we do not know why, but the three friends do. And the story is broken down into five parts, and uh, Bible scholar Tremper Longman divides it this way. He says, the first is Nebuchadnezzar's image of gold. The second part is the accusation against the three friends, then the confrontation with Nebuchadnezzar, then the miraculous deliverance, and finally, Nebuchadnezzar works. Worships God. So it's in five parts. We'll take the first one. The first one is that Nebuchadnezzar makes this statue that's 90 feet tall. And it was not uncommon, perhaps not common, but not uncommon for uh, large statues to be erected. Um, We think of the Sphinx statue in Egypt that was 240 feet long by 60 feet high. There was the Colossus of Rhodes that was built in 300 BC, and that was 105 feet tall or about 34 meters. There was also the great statue of Zeus, which was 40 feet high, and that was built in Greece in the 5th century BC. And so there are other nations that have enormous statues. So this is not a crazy thing. Um, So it's 90 feet tall or 30 meters tall and and three meters wide, nine feet wide. It's likely that it stood on a base. And Stephen Miller says it's possible that... uh, the base was 20 or 30 feet tall, 7 to 10 meters tall. And then the statues on top of it, and it's not solid gold, but plated with gold. And Nebuchadnezzar certainly had the resources to be able to do this. In fact, uh, French archaeologist Aupère located the remains of a base that was 45 square feet and 20 feet high, about four miles south of ancient Babylon. We don't know exactly where the plain of Dura was, but it's believed that it was a suburb of the city. Now we move on to part two, where everybody has to bow down and worship this idol. The author, Daniel, gives us a a long list of people who were present. There were the satraps who were rulers over large divisions of the empire, the prefects who reported to the satraps, governors who would have been over smaller outlying regions like Jerusalem or Judea, advisors, treasurers, judges, magistrates, um, all these officials who had power in Babylon were assembled. And the author repeats this list twice. It's a long list, and he's intentional in repeating it so that we understand how much pressure there is to conform to what the king wants them to do. And these people don't know why they're there. So all they know is the king wants us to be on this plane. There's a huge statue there. There's a furnace that is blazing hot, 
And there's a herald who makes the announcement, and he says, You're commanded, O peoples and nations, that when you hear the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music, you are to fall down and worship the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. And this, I mean, almost seems like a an evil villain scene from a spy movie in the the 60s and 70s, like a bad James Bond movie, but it's not. King Nebuchadnezzar burned people to death. Uh, We know that from Jeremiah 29, 22, which says, because of them, this curse shall be used by all the exiles from Judah and Babylon. The Lord make you like Zedekiah and Ahab, whom the king of Babylon roasted in fire. A furnace in Nebuchadnezzar's day likely looked like an old-fashioned milk bottle with a large opening at the top and then another opening at the bottom where you could put in uh, the charcoal and you could see what's going on. Now, this furnace could reach up to 1,000 degrees centigrade or 1,800 degrees Fahrenheit. It would have been used to uh, make the statue and to fire the bricks for that statue. And so it's likely billowing, the smoke coming out, it's blazing. This is pressure. There are so many musicians, the king has put them on the spot. He's gathered all of their peers together. And he's saying, if you do not worship this statue and bow down, you're going to die immediately. The way the author has repeated the instruments, he's repeated the the list of governors, he is creating tension for us. So we see the type of pressure that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego would have been under. And what we know is that they didn't bow down. They didn't say, well, we'll just worship God in our hearts while we bow down. They didn't try to protect themselves and say, well, you know, God put us in this position, so I want to keep my witness. Uh, They refused to bow down. For everybody else, this would not have been a big deal. They were polytheistic, and they recognized a multitude of gods. And so bringing in another god, bowing down before this image, would not have fazed them at all. But for the Jews, there is no way that they can do this. And they don't. And now we get to the next section, the third part, where there's this accusation before the king. Um, So we look at verse 8, and the word malicious is used, and it's translated to eat the pieces of flesh torn off from somebody's body. It's likely the king of Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar, would have never known that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego didn't bow down unless they would have been reported. And so there are enemies in the workplace who want them dead, who want them out of the way. Maybe they resent the fact that they're foreigners. Maybe they resent the fact that they were shown favor. Uh, But they go to the king, and the way they tell the story is 
they are appealing to Nebuchadnezzar's vanity. And they say to him, O king, live forever. You've made a decree that every man who hears the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music shall fall down and worship the golden image. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. There are certain Jews whom you have appointed over the affairs of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These men, O king, pay no attention to you. They do not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Then Nebuchadnezzar, in a furious rage, commanded that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be brought before him. And so what we see is is they're appealing to his vanity. They're saying, oh, king, these men that you appointed, they pay no attention to you. And if you are a dictator who kills people who disobey, this gets under your skin quickly. Stephen Miller says that the astrologers were stressing the magnitude of the Jews' rebellion, even though the king himself had graciously given them positions, they were unappreciative and insubordinate, or they were issuing a veiled assault on the king's judgment that Nebuchadnezzar had made a mistake in assigning these foreigners' positions over the native Babylonians. Nebuchadnezzar flies into a rage, has them called before him, and he gives them a second chance. And he says, hey, uh, you bow down now, you have a chance, and it's fine. But if you don't worship, you will immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. And who is the God who will deliver you out of my hands? Nebuchadnezzar here gives them a second chance, but he also is so full of pride that he believes he is in absolute control over these men. And that, yeah, maybe their God could reveal a dream, but look, no God is powerful enough to prevent me from killing you. Uh, So Nebuchadnezzar here is so full of pride and arrogance, and there's so much tension because here here Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are in front of everyone. There would have been so much pressure just to bow down, so much pressure to say it's just once. It's, you know what, we're not really worshiping, but we'll do this. They don't do that. Instead, what they say to him is, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If this be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. These three young men are so devoted to God. They are not going to bow down. They are not going to do anything that could be construed as another God. And we may wonder why, why not? Why can't they just bow down and worship God in their heart? Tremper Longman says it this way, that they are being told to demote their God, the one who created him, by not giving him their exclusive worship. They are also to worship a statue of a God they know does not exist, and they cannot simply rationalize their actions because the act of bowing down and worship 
indicates that they affirm the statue as equal to their God. By accepting the statue into the category of deity, they will inevitably reduce the ultimacy, authority, and jurisdiction of the true God and demote him in such a way that they will make him out to be no more than one of the deities of the polytheistic world. Ultimately, the dilution or diminishment of deity is a denunciation of deity. And so basically what Tremper Longman is saying there is the reason they will not bow down is because they are communicating to everyone who's watching that their God is no different from all the other gods. He's just one of many. And they will diminish uh, God in the eyes of others uh, in the eye, in their own eyes, and, and they're basically denouncing God because they're saying, "You are just one of many gods, and you are not worthy of my wholehearted devotion." And that's what they're communicating. That's what they would be communicating to everyone by standing firm and refusing to worship, by refusing to bow down or appear to worship in any way, they are sending a message, they are sending a witness to everyone that they believe the idol is false and that they worship the true God. Now, the thing is, is, is they say, look, our God can save us, but even if he doesn't, we will not worship. They know that God does not rescue everyone. They, they believe that God has the power to rescue, but they know that other people have been killed for God and they may die in this situation. But they love God more than they love their own lives. They love God more than they love their career. They are not going to participate in worship of an idol. They're not going to bow down in a way that makes people think that they're worshiping the idol. They are going to stand firm for God. King Nebuchadnezzar can't handle it. He flies into a rage. He says, heat it seven times hotter, which is just an idiomatic way of saying, make it as hot as possible. They get thrown in, and then we get to the divine rescue. Uh, Nebuchadnezzar is watching them, but instead of seeing three men burned to death, he sees a fourth who appears to be, he says, a, a son of the gods. And what we would say is it could have been a pre-incarnate Christ who appeared uh, or the angel of the Lord. We don't know. But what we do know is in Isaiah 43, 2, it says, when you walk through the fire, you will not be burned. The flames will not set you ablaze. And this is the fulfillment of that prophecy. Uh, They are protected. God rescues them. And what is God doing? There's a purpose in this miracle. The purpose is to show Nebuchadnezzar that there is a living God who is more powerful than him. At this point, Nebuchadnezzar is the most powerful man in the world. He has authority over life and death. He can kill anyone he wants to, and he thinks he is in charge, but God is demonstrating to him, you're not in charge. You see, in in that day, when one nation conquered another nation, they believed that it was because their God was more powerful than the vanquished nation's God. And so it'd be natural for Nebuchadnezzar to think he's more powerful than the Lord. But the Lord is graciously showing Nebuchadnezzar that he doesn't have power. The miracle is demonstrating the authority and the sovereignty and the power of God. And what is the purpose? I believe God is doing this because he wants Nebuchadnezzar 
to know him and to worship him. And it, the way that he comes to know this is not because the three men capitulated so they could keep a witness or stay in their position, but it was because they stood firm. The fact that they stood firm under intense pressure was the stage for God to reveal his greatness. And then the fifth part, we find that Nebuchadnezzar's response is to worship God and to say, uh, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and delivered his servants who trusted in him and set aside the king's command and yielded up their bodies rather than serve and worship any god except their own god. Therefore, I make a decree, any people, nation, or language that speaks anything against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego shall be torn limb from limb, and their houses laid in ruins, for there is no other God who is able to rescue in this way. Then the king promoted Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the province of Babylon. And so the end of the story is the king worships God, but he doesn't quite fully give God his heart, as we, we're going to see in the next chapter. But Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego get promoted, and the people who worship God, the Jews, get protected. And so it's an unlikely ending. They're put under this intense pressure where everybody would have been saying, just bow down, just do it, just do it, just do it. Um, you can keep worshiping God, don't bow down, but you know, in your heart, worship God. They could have done that, but they stood firm. They refused to do that, and then they end up getting promoted. Uh, they get rescued and promoted, and the people who worship God get protected. So again, their decision to stand firm set the stage for God to glorify his name. Now, as you go to the connect groups, I just want to encourage you to think this through. How do we apply this? How can we apply what we learn about God in this chapter how can we apply what we learn about, you know, people and, and how they treat one another, what they believe, what they think, what the temptations are? How might we find ourselves in a similar situation to Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego? And, and what should we do? What should our answer be when we're put on the spot under intense pressure? These are the questions we want to work through in connect groups. And so I hope you have a great group.